0: Hello, I'm Ryan Tate, and welcome to History of the Pacific Northwest, Episode 3, New World, New Spain, and a Man Named Drake. Today we will be following the establishment of the Spanish Empire in the New World, as well as the journey of the first European to set eyes on the Pacific Northwest, Sir Francis Drake. Depending on who you ask, Drake was either an explorer, a pirate, a hero, or a villain. He certainly was something, and I'll let you be the judge. Before Drake though, let's talk about Spain. I should note, this will be one of several episodes of this podcast where I will be pronouncing names and words from languages that I do not speak. I try to do my due diligence in listening to pronunciations and practicing them, but I will still likely mess some of them up. If I do, I'm sorry. Okay, let's get to it. Many people now fail to recognize Spain's dominance in the world between 1500 and 1700. At the time, Spain and Portugal were without a doubt the most powerful kingdoms on the planet. Spain laid claim to all South America, save Brazil, and much of North America, including two-thirds of the modern-day United States. Portugal claimed a massive trade empire throughout Africa and the Indian Ocean. For a time, other European countries had no hope of competing. Spain and Portugal are located on the Iberian Peninsula, the westernmost part of mainland Europe. Portugal resides on the west coast, and Spain comprises the rest of the peninsula. So let's look at how these two kingdoms became such powerhouses in one of the most pivotal periods of human history. Back in 711 AD, an Islamic army called the Moors crossed the Strait of Gibraltar and conquered the Iberian Peninsula. The kingdoms of Spain and Portugal, both Catholic, found themselves subjugated in the Islamic Empire. At the time, there was no unified Spain. It was a grouping of different kingdoms. The kingdoms of Castile and Aragon were among the most dominant. Slowly and grudgingly, the Catholic kingdoms of the Iberian Peninsula resisted the Moors. This period was known as the Reconquista, or Reconquest. Portugal successfully ended its Reconquista by 1249. Spain, once united with the marriage of Isabella of Castile, and Ferdinand of Aragon, in 1469, drove out the Moors by January 2, 1492. The success of the Reconquista had Pope Alexander VI recognize Ferdinand and Isabella as the Catholic Monarchs. All this created a religious fervor in Spain that would drive policy and action for the next 200 years. With unification and energy from reclaiming their respective kingdoms, Portugal and Spain would usher in a period of exploration in Europe, which inevitably brings us to Christopher Columbus. It seems to be a rule that any history of North or South America must at least mention Columbus once, so here we go. Columbus's first voyage is tainted with myth, and his legacy is no doubt in question. Many have sought to vilify Columbus in recent years, while others maintain him as a hero of old. This scrutiny has caused historians to return to the historical record to figure out the truth. To me, that is the beauty of history. A lot of people see history as a fixed and rigid study, but history is full of controversy and debate. Many historians often disagree with each other when it comes to what happened in the past. History is an ongoing conversation in an attempt to figure out what really happened. With that in mind, I intend to merely use Columbus as a stepping stone in our greater narrative but I'd like to at least dispel a few myths along the way. Christopher Columbus was a Genoese man from northwestern Italy. He is often attributed with the discovery of America, but he was not the first from the Old World to come to the Americas. Columbus was the first to establish permanent contact between the Americas and the rest of the world, though. The first explorers to come to North America were actually Vikings. They even established a settlement that archaeologists have uncovered. It is possible that others have also made the journey including polynesian ancient greek and african voyagers alike aside from the vikings there is not enough definitive evidence to say for certain whether any of those other groups did in fact make it to the americas so i will leave it there in 1487 portuguese navigator bartolomeo diaz rounded the cape of good hope the southernmost point of africa this moment allowed the portuguese to claim a trade monopoly on all eastern markets this inspired columbus to find another route to the far east just as well the cape of good hope was a perilous place for sailors its unpredictable winds tendency for massive waves and major storms made it among the most dangerous places in the ocean even to this day as many as one in five ships who went back and forth through the cape were shipwrecked or sunk An 80% success rate is not exactly ideal when it comes to trade and commerce. Columbus, like most of the time, knew that if you sailed west, you would eventually go around the world and hit Asia. He believed this would be a more direct route than the Cape of Good Hope. Columbus, like most learned people during his time, knew that the world was round. Ancient Egyptian and Greek mathematicians had assumed that the Earth must be a sphere, and even accurately calculated the size of the Earth. So, sail west go around and hit Asia. Simple, right? However, Columbus made a terrible miscalculation of just how big the world was. Regardless, Columbus looked for someone to back his expedition, and many said no. Finally, he came before King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain, who agreed to outfit him with all he needed. Columbus would be granted governorship of any lands discovered and given a 10% trade commission on goods from the Far East. Columbus's first voyage was smooth for the most part, as no one was worried about falling off the edge of the earth. He landed in what is now known as the Bahamas. His second, third, and fourth voyages took him to Martinique, Guadalupe, Santo Domingo, Cuba, Venezuela, Jamaica, Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, and Honduras. Columbus believed he had been going back and forth to Asia until the day he died. Some of his contemporaries realized that he had in fact discovered an entirely new continent. I want to pause here for a brief moment to talk about the nature of discovery. For a great deal of this series, we will look at the lives of explorers who discovered many things in the Pacific Northwest. Discovery connotes that something has never been found or seen before by any human. This is problematic for the indigenous peoples who have lived there. Surely Native Americans discovered everything that existed pre-Columbus, And even had names for landmarks as well as the plants and animals. Discovery, in this sense, really just means found by a European, or later an American. So do me a favor and keep that in mind as I continue to go on about the many discoveries made in this podcast. With Portugal and Spain reaching far out beyond their borders, they needed to come to an agreement on who got what in the world. Pope Alexander VI called a papal bull, which is like an executive order from the Pope, and drew a line dividing the earth in half east to west. One half was for Spain, and the other half for Portugal. The Pope decreed that all non-Christian lands in either half were now under the dominion of the two powers. Spain's half included all of North and South America, except for Brazil, and Portugal's half included all of the Old World of Asia, Africa, and Europe. This papal bull became known as the Treaty of Tordesillas. Spain and Portugal had exclusive rights to establish their empires and spread Christianity throughout the world. The line of demarcation is why Brazil is the only country in the Americas whose official language today is Portuguese. So monarchs used their subjects to explore and claim land for the new Spanish Empire. Spanish controlled parts of North and South America became known as New Spain. The conquistadors who conquered and founded new holdings for the King and Queen of Spain were often rewarded for their efforts. In the 15 and 1600s, people coming to the New World were often motivated by God, gold, and glory, the three Gs. Spread Christianity, find wealth, and earn honor through conquest. The conquistadors of Spain are famous for conquering empires such as the Maya, Inca, and Aztec in Central and South America. Among these conquistadors was Hernán Cortés, In 1519, Cortes led an expedition that caused the downfall of the Aztec Empire and helped establish a strong presence for New Spain in what is modern-day Mexico. After Cortes consolidated his power in Mexico, he was asked by Spain's king at the time, Charles V, to continue exploring north. Cortes was unhappy that he was not awarded a governorship and an easy life behind a desk, but would follow the king's orders. This move by Charles V and Cortes would ultimately shape the future of North America. Part of Charles V's motivation for Cortes exploring North was to be one of the first to find what the Spanish called the Strait of Anayan, otherwise known as the Northwest Passage. More than anything else, the Northwest Passage influenced exploration of North America. Most had assumed, or maybe just hoped, that a waterway existed in the North American continent connecting the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. A Northwest Passage would mean that Europeans could save time and not have to endure the treacherous passage around Cape Horn, or use the Strait of Magellan, which was not much better. Ferdinand Magellan, whose expedition was the first to circumnavigate the world, had navigated a strait through South America that cut through the continent. However, the Strait of Magellan was not the most ideal. It was windy and rough with many twists and turns. If you did not know the way you could easily get lost while cortez planned to outfit expeditions in search of the northwest passage he had heard interesting tales of the land west of mexico in modern-day baja california the aztec told him there was a place called ladyland reminiscent of the amazon warriors of greek mythology supposedly ladyland was a place rich in gold and pearls the natives told Cortez that the warrior women would kill any man who intruded on their land, with the exception of mating season, as men were necessary to keep the population of Ladyland going. No male babies were kept alive, though. These warrior women were nothing to mess with. They had trained beasts and were masters of the golden weapons which they wielded. Cortez told Charles V of the prospect of discovering a land laden with treasure and was keen to find it. Cortez sent an expedition to California in search of the fabled land. The chief pilot on this expedition was a man named Fortun Jimenez. Not long after the voyage began, Jimenez led a successful mutiny to take the ship. It's unclear what Jimenez's motivation was, but he'd probably hope to secure a position of power and find substantial wealth as Cortez and so many others had already done. I should note here for a moment that mutiny was no small matter on a ship. On a sailing vessel, military and private alike, chain of command was of the utmost importance. Insubordination would result in physical punishment or imprisonment. Mutiny would be met with summary execution of any involved. If mutineers returned to their home country and it was found out what they had done, they would likely be tried and executed. So as a chief pilot, Jimenez would have been an experienced seaman and known exactly what he was risking here. Menendez's crew were the first Europeans to see Baja, California. Upon arrival, they were quickly confronted and nearly slaughtered by either the Waikura or Piracu natives. It is unclear exactly what happened, so I can't say for certain what took place. What is clear, that nearly all the Spanish who went ashore were killed. Those lucky enough to escape with their lives quickly fled to northwest Mexico. Governor of the region, Nuno Beltran de Guzman, was a staunch critic of Cortez and his adversary. Guzman was a brutal man. He had a reputation for cruelty and bought the loyalty of unsavory characters who would do as Guzman told them to. Guzman once tortured an Aztec ruler to death because he wouldn't give him the location of a treasure cache that never existed. Likely hearing about the mutiny, Guzman tortured the survivors regarding their adventure in Baja, California. They had originally said that there were pearls and gold, but upon interrogation by Guzman, refuted their story. That did not stop Guzman from claiming Baja California as his own. Hearing of this, Cortes was furious. He gathered 500 Spanish soldiers and a number of native auxiliaries to go and establish a colony in Baja California. He defiantly marched through Guzman's territory, claiming he had a right to go anywhere that was under the Spanish crown. Unfortunately for Cortes, His dreams of establishing a colony were dashed by disappointment. Cortes landed in modern-day La Paz, at the southern tip of California. He did not encounter any civilizations of warrior women, nor did he find any gold or pearls. This is but one of many moments in the history of New Spain where the Spanish were duped by stories of faraway kingdoms, wealthy to the brim, ripe for the taking. Not unlike El Dorado, which the Spanish searched for in vain for years. Time and time again, the Spanish looked for cities that never existed. More often than not, natives saw a chance to turn the Spanish against their enemies, or merely get rid of them by saying, Oh, you're looking for gold? You should go that way. Yep, keep going and don't stop until you are very, very far away from here. Upon landing in Baja, California, Cortez and his men found nothing but arid land. It was dry, sparse, and untamed. Supposedly, one of the natives with Cortez hung himself at the site of that dreadful place. That is likely an apocryphal story, but speaks to just how uninhabitable that land must have been. A Spanish veteran said it was the worst place in the world. Cortez would abandon his California dream, recognizing that there was no logical reason for it to exist. This moment would be further punctuated by news that Cortez's cousin, Francisco Pizarro, had just successfully conquered the Inca Empire in modern-day Peru. With this news, no one was thinking about California, not with the promise of land and wealth to the south. In time, Spain would have but a few trading posts in California. The Jesuit priests would develop several missions in California as well. Overall, Spain neglected its holdings northwest of Mexico for a considerable time, which would keep them from having a strong claim to the Pacific Northwest. It seems that Spain expected the Treaty of Tordesillas to be enforced and protected keeping others out of its empire. The treaty would prove to be unenforceable as time went on, though. It would not be long before others began coming to North America as well. The English became one of many European powers to take an interest in the New World. Queen Elizabeth I sent a man on an expedition of North America. He would become the first European to set their eyes upon the Pacific Northwest. That man was none other than Sir Francis Drake. Drake was born in the English town of Tavistock in 1540, but would soon move to Plymouth, England. As a young man, he apprenticed on a bark-style trading ship owned by a distant family member named William Hawkins. Hawkins took a liking to Drake and found him to be capable, hardworking, and intelligent. Hawkins was not married and had no children, so he left Drake his bark. Drake would sell his ship, and sail under a man named John Hawkins. Drake engaged himself in the transatlantic slave trade. Slavery was a common practice amongst the kingdoms of Africa, but it is not exactly what most Americans think of when they hear the word slavery. How it worked was warring kingdoms in Africa would often capture people to be sold into slavery. However, human labor was not a typical reason that someone purchased a slave. Enslaved individuals were often educated, and invested in so that they could become advisors, tutors, bodyguards, warriors, managers, and many other professions. Owning slaves was a symbol of status, and so you wanted them to be healthy, intelligent, and well-dressed. However, European nations saw the African slave trade as nothing more than a cheap source of labor. Drake under Hawkins found himself attacking Portuguese ships and stealing the enslaved individuals they had on board. They would then take them and sell them to the Spanish. Hawkins also dealt directly with slave traders on the west coast of Africa. This caused a bit of an international incident. Spain and Portugal essentially had monopolies on their respective halves of the globe. English vessels getting involved in transatlantic trade was a violation of the Treaty of Tordesillas. It wasn't long before Hawkins faced Spanish aggression. While his fleet was anchored in modern-day Veracruz, Spanish officials believed that the English trading on the Spanish main was illegal smuggling according to the treaty of Tordesillas. as hawkins was getting suspicious of Spain's ill intent the Spanish attacked shore batteries fired and boarding parties attempted to seize ships four ships were lost and many of the English sailors died the vessel that Drake commanded barely made it home the battle at Veracruz would turn Drake into a sworn enemy of the Spanish for the rest of his life Drake became a privateer and in 1570 set forth on his first expedition. He spent two years sailing around Cartagena, attacking and plundering Spanish ships and towns. He took silver and supplies every chance that he got. Now if you're thinking, that sounds like piracy, well you're not far off. Privateering is essentially government-sanctioned piracy. This was common practice during times of conflict. If you had the king or queen's approval, you were free to attack towns and trade ships of enemy countries. Drake spent a successful two years privateering and returned to Plymouth, England on August 9, 1573. In 1577, Drake was tasked with a second expedition. This was officially a privately funded endeavor. However, Queen Elizabeth I was one of the financiers. Drake was asked to search for the fabled Northwest Passage, and if he happened to attack Spanish ships, sack some coastal towns, and come home with some treasure, that was alright too. Drake's fleet launched on November 15th, 1577, but hit a storm and had to return to Plymouth. After some repairs, they launched again December 13th of the same year. Drake had five ships in all. His flagship, he would rename the Golden Hind, about halfway through the expedition. Drake reached the Caribbean in late January of 1578. He plundered his way around the Caribbean and down the coast of South America. That September, Drake's fleet was beset by a massive storm. It supposedly lasted 52 days. One ship was lost at sea and forced to return to England. Drake's flagship, the Golden Hind, and one other, sailed through the Strait of Magellan and sailed up the west coast of South America. At Lima, Peru, Drake found a treasure trove of vessels and began further packing the holds of his ships. It was here that he heard there was a massive treasure ship currently northbound. Drake caught up with the ship and took it. He and his men were delighted to find thirteen chests full of coins, thousands and thousands of pounds of solid gold and silver bars. In fact, it was too much for Drake to make off with all of it, but the holds were packed and Drake was elated. With treasure secure, Drake navigated north in search of a passage back to England, heading east. Sources contradict how far north Drake made it. There is some speculation as to where he sailed to and where he stopped. It is certain that he sailed north, and may have reached as high as Vancouver Island, near Washington. He then came down along the coast of Washington and Oregon, keeping his eyes peeled for a passageway. He was pushed ashore by wind at Coos Bay, Oregon. Drake said they were surrounded by thick, stinking fogs. Well, fog is absolutely on brand for the Pacific Northwest Coast. Being hardly able to make sense of anything in the dense fog, Drake headed southways in search of a good anchorage to make some repairs. His most agreed upon landing site is at Drake's Cove in Northern California. While there, he was greeted by the Coast Miwok people, who offered him friendship and received him and his crew graciously. They sang songs and offered gifts and food as a sign of friendship. First-hand accounts of the voyage say that the Coast Miwok thought Drake and his men were gods. This is a common reaction to Europeans meeting native peoples in the New World. They often mistook friendly gestures and gift-giving as some sign of worship. Truthfully, there is nothing to show that any Native American people mistook Europeans for gods. Francis Drake decided to claim this landing spot for the English and he dubbed it Nova Albion. Albion being a word for England, so it essentially translates as New England. Drake erected a marker with an engraving of Queen Elizabeth I and believed to be establishing a substantial English claim north of Spanish holdings. Drake left Nova Albion and sailed due west where he would sail to Asia, around the Cape of Good Hope, and return to Plymouth September 26, 1580. Drake was the second person ever to circumnavigate the world, but he was the first Englishman to do so, and he was the first expedition leader who actually saw the whole thing from start to finish. Ferdinand Magellan, whose voyage was first, died before the expedition completed its journey The following April, Queen Elizabeth knighted Drake on his flagship the Golden Hind, and he would be then known as Sir Francis Drake. Drake's privateering voyage was a huge success for England. He plundered the equivalent of about $256 million in today's money. Drake's voyage was another spark in the growing tensions between Spain and England. That tension would result in years of naval warfare. England's success would allow them to put their disdain for the Treaty of Tordesillas into action england would begin looking to establish a presence in north america as would others in the world spain would soon find that their idealistic claims on the pacific northwest would not be enough to keep the competition at bay thank you for tuning into this episode of the podcast next time we will continue to look at the european powers who stake claims in north america moving closer and closer to a controversy over who has claim to the pacific northwest